Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here recording Lost in the Woods. Welcome back for another week. Hopefully everybody had a great holiday uh, for whatever you celebrate as far as eating lots of food goes. Yeah, and Black Friday shopping to those who... (laughs) I did not do that. I did not do it either. No, I haven't done that in years actually. I haven't done it since that one time where you called me. Oh, yeah. Like in the middle of the night? Yeah, I was like a teenager and you called me. And then you and Hannah came pulling up to the house at Uh like 3 a.m. Yeah, we were out all night that night. That was the last time I did it, I think. Anyway, we have some exciting news we wanted to share with you guys. We actually just hit 100 Patreons. Yes. Which is so, so exciting. So we are sending out... Our limited edition sticker with our old logo on it. It's a holographic sticker. It's amazing. And uh, I think we have like 10 extra stickers or something. So anybody who signs up, like the next 10 people will still get one. Do I get one? Maybe. I'll let you know. You should put one on your water bottle. Your water bottle is kind of boring. Thank you. Thank you. Also, uh, if you sign up uh, before December, then you... or. Before Christmas, then you will get our Christmas card as well. Yes, Christmas cards this year again. Yay! I love Christmas cards. But yeah, today we are bringing you Murder in Cabin number 28. It's pretty exciting. Is it? No, it's a murder one. It's not super exciting. (laughs) Is there any animal abuse in this one? No, actually. No animal abuse? Okay, what about... There is some violence in this episode, some murder. Um, no way. I would never is... have guessed that there was violence involved with a murder. I know, right? And there's also violence against children as well. Yeah, so prepare yourself for that. If you have a problem with that, this episode might not be for you. This murder actually occurs in April of 1981. So we're going back in time a little bit. It's actually before I was born. Wow. Barely. Today, we are going to California, actually. Now, this case involves Glenna Susan Sharp, or Sue, as everybody called her. And she was kind of in a time in her life where she was attempting to pick up the pieces. Like, her life had kind of fallen apart. And in July of 1979, she decided to leave her abusive husband and move across the country with her five children. I feel you there, girl. There were also allegations that he had become sexually abusive with his own daughters. So definitely a situation that she felt like she needed to get out of immediately. Sue and James Sharp had married young, and at 20, they had their first son, John. Sue was a stay-at-home mom, and James was in the military. Now, in 1979, Sue separated from James, but felt like she needed to get distance and needed to get closer to her family where she would have support. So she left their family home in North Carolina and moved to California where Sue's brother Don Davis lived. Now, when they first arrived in California, Sue and her children lived in a mobile home called Claremont Trailer Park. And James did visit the family here only once and never again which is kind of crazy. And I know in the 80s, things were a little different, you know, as far as the way the courts worked for everything. Custody usually went to mom no matter what. I mean, I can kind of understand why this would happen. Plus, if 
he was known to be abusive, that would also lead to him having less rights, I would assume. Yeah. Now, in November of 1980, they rented cabin number 28 in the Keddy Resort in Keddy, California. Now, her children were John, who was 15, Tina, who was 12, Rick, who was 10, and Greg, who was 5. And then Sheila, who was 14, there are reports that she joined the family later after giving birth to a baby in Oregon who was put up for adoption. It's a very 80s thing to do, send your child. Yeah, she's also 14. Maybe that's... Yeah, that's what I was thinking. (gasps) That's probably the abuse from the dead. Fuck. 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 I know. I don't know why she was in Oregon. I'm assuming that's... I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what happened. And I could only find one place where it even mentioned that. So I'm not even 100% sure that it's accurate. Okay, well, but knowing the history, it kind of sounds like it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, this cabin was actually a huge improvement. And when I say huge improvement, it's still a dump. But it's a huge improvement from the tiny trailer that they had previously been living in. So Sue, Sheila, and Tina actually shared one room. Rick and Greg, the two young boys, shared another. And John actually claimed the unfinished basement for himself where he had his own entrance around back. So you couldn't get to the basement from the main part of the house. It had its own entrance in the back. That's cool. I know. He was probably stoked. Not only does he have his own room. Yeah. But he also has his own entrance after living in a trailer with his family. Money was very tight, and Sue struggled to make ends meet. So she received $250 a month from the Navy and a small amount from the California Education Training Act program. And she worked part-time at the Quincy Elks Lodge. The family also collected food stamps. $250, even back in the 80s, is a very small amount of money. Mm -hmm. That's per month. That's crazy. One thing about the Keddie Resort is... It has a bunch of these cabins, and originally these cabins were rented out to, like, hunters, people in, like, outdoor-type situations, and when they fell on hard times, they started renting them out to people to live in. So that's why they're living in a cabin at a resort, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And it also sounds like falling on hard times made them not very picky about the type of people that they rented these cabins out to. So there was known to be some riffraff in this area. Okay. So on the morning of April 11th, 1981, around 11.30 a.m., Sue, Sheila, and Greg drove from their friend's house, the Meek family, and picked up Rick at Gansner Fields, where he had baseball tryouts. On their route, they came across 15-year-old John and his high school friend, Dana Wingate, who were hitchhiking. Right. And they were at the mouth of the canyon from Quincy to Ketty. So they picked them up and headed home. But around 3.30, the two were seen hitchhiking back to Quincy and were seen in the city's downtown area. And they were also seen at a party. Which was alleged to have alcohol and drugs, but no one can say whether or not the two boys were drinking. Yeah. Or not. The boys? Dana's a boy? Dana's a boy, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that Dana was a unisex name. Is it? Actually, Actually, Dana used to be more a male name. Now it's more of a female name. Really? Yeah. Dana. I only knew male Danas when I was growing up. I literally don't know a male Dana. Huh. 
Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Um, another thing is, and this might be important, it might not, but not one person came forward from the party and actually confirmed that the boys were there. No one did? No one did. Okay. And they were downtown, and they did come home late, so we we just don't know for sure. Okay, so the two returned back to the cabin between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. Although Sue asked them not to hitchhike, they did. Yep. Naturally. Not shocking. And it's the 80s. Now, it was unknown for a long time who actually gave them a ride home, but later a woman does come forward who claimed that she drove the pair home and said that they entered through the front door and not the back entrance. Okay. And she could see at least one light on in the house. So that evening, Sheila and Tina were hanging out in cabin number 28, Mm -hmm. where the Seabolts live. Yeah, and so this is Sheila, the 14-year-old, and Tina, the 12-year-old. Right. And the Seabolts had... Young children their age. Okay, so, so the this Seabolts was, is just another family. Yep, this was I just want a the common name. Seabolt. I know this was just a common place that the kids hung out. Seabolt. Mm-hmm. Last name Seabolt. It kind of sounds like a racehorse. And the Seabolts were James Senior, his wife Anita, and their two young daughters, Alyssa and Paula. And then they had their son James, or Jamie, as he was called. So Sheila had plans to spend the night, but Tina was ordered by her mom to be home around 9.30, even though she wanted to spend the night. Yeah, and this is probably like a little sister tag along situation. I don't know how old the Seabolt girls were, but it sounds like Sheila had permission to spend the night, but Tina did not. And Sheila did come home earlier in the evening and did her chores. So she did like dishes and stuff and then went back. So it could be that Tina didn't complete her chores and that's why she wasn't able to spend the night or her mom just didn't want her tagging along. I'm not sure. Who knows? Okay, so there were seven people spending the night in cabin number 28 that night. So Sue, Tina, John, and Dana, along with Sue's two youngest sons, Rick and Greg, and their friend, Justin Eason. And he lived in the nearby cabin number 26. So Sue, Justin, and Rick had all watched The Love Boat and had gone to bed around 10 p.m. The Love Boat? Do you know what that is? Yes. It's a show. I've seen it. I've watched Mm. episodes of it. I've actually never seen it, but I know it's a show. In the morning around 7 a.m., Sue's 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, comes back. And she does this in order to get clothes because she decided that she was going to go to church with the family. Now, what she would walk into would be a horrific scene. The living room was covered in blood, and the bodies of her mom, Sue, her brother, John, and Dana were all lying on the ground in the living room. Now, Sheila went running back to the Seabolts, and she would later tell People Magazine that the most vivid image I have is my brother laying there. The neighbors say I came back screaming. They said I said it was Johnny, but I don't remember that. It's a little bit confused. It could have been that I blocked it all out and the shock of it all, too. I literally cannot imagine. Now, who's John? Who's Johnny? Her brother. Oh, it's Johnny. Yeah, so she came back yelling, it's Johnny. But she doesn't remember that. She just remembers going back screaming. 
So apparently the image of her brother is the one that stuck in her mind initially anyway. Probably he the was, first person she looked at. He was actually the closest to the front door, yeah. Now, James Siebel returns to the cabin where he actually finds Rick, Greg, and Justin, the three young boys, in a back bedroom, unharmed. And he's able to bring them out through the window. Yeah, not bring him past that. Right. He also checked on the other three to see if anyone was still alive. And we know that this would potentially contaminate the scene. He walks in there. He checks on them, potentially leaving fingerprints, DNA, footprints, whatever. Does he get accused? No. No. But it might be important later. Like, what else was he supposed to do? Not go see if the other kids are okay? Well, exactly. I mean, he would. Ha- he doesn't know. He just knows she came back screaming. He doesn't know what's going you know, on. Yeah, he didn't even know what was happening. Like, a little kid. Like, yeah. No, you would. If that happened with, like, neighbors, like, you'd go in. I would definitely go in. Yeah. I mean, I went into our neighbor's house the other day because they had lit their chimney for the first time. They're our new neighbors. And smoke had started coming out of, like, cracks in the chimney. And so they put the fire out. And then in the morning, after they had left for work, the kids were home. And the fire reignited in the fireplace. So the kids dumped a bunch of water on it, but she called me and she was like, hey, so um, I don't really trust my kids to make sure that this fire is out. Like, can you go over there and check? So I had their house key. So I go in there and, you know, I, I rooted around and it made sure it was all soaking wet. It was like, it looked like one of those like pre-done logs that you would light. You just light the log and it lights on fire. Now, the Seabolts, don't have a phone. So one of them, I couldn't find who, actually runs to the lodge in order to have somebody call for help. And this call comes into police at 8.05 a.m., which is actually, like, if she went home around 7, I mean, that's an hour. That's kind of a long time. Yeah, but who knows if she actually went home at 7. Maybe it was like, maybe it was like, who knows? If it was 7.15 even, that would make sense. By yeah, the even like 7.30. Yeah. yeah. Now, the first officer on scene was Hank Clement, followed by Under Sheriff Ken Shanks and Sergeant Jerry Shaver. And when they arrive on scene, there is blood everywhere. It's on the walls. It's on the floors. It's on the ceilings. It's on Tina's bed and even on Sue's bare feet. And it is very obvious that the bodies have been moved from the place that they were killed. So somebody has staged these bodies. I I don't like the fact that it's on Sue's bare feet. Yes, which means that she walked into something. Really bothers me. I don't like that. No, she was alive. That means that someone was dead while Sue was still alive. Great. Good. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I just, yep. oh, okay. Um. So there was a claw hammer. The fuck is a claw hammer? What is a claw hammer? A cl- it's just a hammer that has like the claw on the back of it. Oh. So it's not it's like just... a, a straight hammer. It also has the claw, which you can use to remove nails. Oh, that's no, just that's not a normal hammer. That's a well, some hammers hammer? don't have that. Yeah. What hammer doesn't have that? I feel like that's. Uh, some hammers are just like a straight hammer. They don't have the back end, like the back claw pieces. I don't... Claw hammers are way scarier than a regular hammer. Yeah, I stepped on the back of a claw hammer once then. Yeah. Well, well, never mind. I know what a claw hammer is, but still fuck a claw And hammer. this is why claw hammers are on the list. Yes, so hammer... 
um, a butcher knife, a steak knife, and these are all laying on a side table. And they are covered in blood. One of the knives had been bent at a 30-degree angle. Yeah, which means it was used with such force that it bent the knife. And there were also stab marks in the wall, which could also explain the bent knife. Somebody was actually stabbing the wall. Why in the fuck are you stabbing the wall? I'm sorry, but what? I don't know. Like... Could it be that they stabbed somebody so hard that it went through and punctured the wall? Or was somebody just, like, legit stabbing at the wall? I mean, shit, and I can go through your body pretty easily. So, blood splatter indicates that all three murders had taken place in the living room. Right, even though there was blood in one of the bedrooms as well. But the majority of the carnage was in the living room. Now... Stop eating. What? Oh, now's a good time to stop eating if you're eating something. Do whatever. I don't know. I don't know what warning to get. Or if you have children in the car, turn the volume down for a second. I don't know. Sue was lying on her side near the sofa, and she was naked from the waist down. She was gagged with a blue bandana and her own underwear, which were secured by tape. She had been stabbed in the chest and the neck. I'll never understand the... Gagging with the underwear. I don't know. I, that To me, that's like a sexually motivated thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. But like, it's happened in multiple of our cases. Mm-hmm. I've heard about it happening in a lot of cases, actually. Well, handy maybe. And I think mostly it's a sexual component. Her neck wound was horizontal and cut through her larynx and nicked her spine. And she had an impact wound on the side of her head. She had defensive wounds on her arms, so she did fight back. And she was partially covered with a yellow blanket. Her hands and feet were bound with electrical wiring. There was, however, no sign of sexual assault. And I don't really even understand what that means because I feel like if her clothes are removed, her underwear is stuffed into her mouth, regardless of whether or not there's signs that she was raped or not, to me, there's signs of a sexual assault here. Yeah, and if she was, if she wouldn't have bruising or anything, it... Maybe just didn't. Well, who knows? I mean, a sexual assault could mean a lot of things, but I I don't understand. I saw that over and over again. There were no signs of a sexual assault. And she also has blood all over her inner thighs. So somebody is touching, whether it's her or somebody else, the inside of her thighs while she is half naked with blood on their hands or blood on something. So I don't know. To me... This is the 80s, and maybe they didn't check for sexual assaults the way that they do now. I mean, I really don't know. It sounds like she was sexually assaulted to me. Yeah. So John was face up and the closest to the door, and his hands were covered in blood, and his throat was slashed. His ankles were wound with electrical wire that also wound around Dana's ankles as well. Right, so they're close enough to each other that the same wire is wrapped around both of their ankles. And his hands were tied together with medical tape. Yep. Now, Dana was laying on his stomach next to John, and he had multiple head injuries from a hammer. And he was the only one that was manually strangled. Now, John and David both had blunt force trauma to their heads caused by the hammer. 
An autopsy showed that John died from strangulation and that Sue and Dana died from the blunt force trauma and stab wounds. And the attack was placed between midnight and 2 a.m. So there was no sign of forced entry at the cabin and the drapes were closed. The phone was off the hook and the cord had been cut from the wall. Mm -hmm. They also recovered an unidentified fingerprint from the handrail on the back stairs. Right. Also, there was a shoe print outside. Right. And there was basically really no fingerprints inside the house, which made them think... He cleaned. Or gloves were worn. Something. There was no unidentified fingerprints inside the house. Yeah. Now, Sheila, along with the Seabolt family, had heard nothing in the middle of the night. But a couple living in nearby cabin number 16 said that they were awakened at 1.15 by what they described as muffled screaming, but they couldn't identify where it was coming from. And it stopped, so they went back to bed. Now, I don't know if Madison can identify with this or not, but I am woken up at least once a night by some noise, right? Yeah. Usually it's like a car door slamming, which in my mind means that somebody is breaking into one of my cars. I don't know why. We have neighbors that are close enough that I hear their door slamming. Yeah. Or I'll hear something in the house, and almost always I have to get up and go investigate it in order to go back to sleep. Yes. The amount of times she comes in, no glasses on, investigating things with her squinty (laughs) little eyes, and she can't fucking see anything. I'm legally blind without my contact phone. She can't see anything. Yeah. Nothing. So I can kind of understand this. It is unfortunate, though, that they didn't investigate further. Yes. Now, if you haven't put this together yet, you guys, Tina is missing. The 12-year-old is not in the house. This actually took police hours to realize. Because of everything going on, nobody immediately noticed that Tina was not among the dead or the living in this house. Honestly, I'm not surprised by that. That doesn't... Uh, Well, you would think, okay, there's three kids that are found alive in the bedroom... There's three dead people in the house. Two people in the house don't even belong to the house. There's a girl next door who does belong to the house, but was spending the night there. You'd think you'd be like, okay, is everybody accounted for? Yeah, but they only have, they have this uh, little girl and some neighbors. I don't know, maybe it's overwhelming. 80s, probably a small police department if I had to assume. They actually do call in the FBI because this is now a missing persons case. And there is blood on her bed and sheets, but no sign of her. Her jacket and shoes are also gone, along with a toolbox from the cabin that was noted to be missing. Hmm. Now, a grid pattern search of the area covering a five-mile radius around the house was conducted with canines, but nothing was found. And the FBI initially got involved but actually backed off pretty quickly and said that the California State Department of Justice was doing an adequate job, making their presence unnecessary. I'm sorry, did they find Tina? Because if they didn't, then they're not doing an adequate job. So after the autopsy, they found out that the wound on the side of Sue's head was an imprint matching the butt of a Daisy 880 Powerline BB pellet rifle. Right, which is really... Um, a gun for, like, young shooters. Okay. Okay, so several neighbors recall seeing a green van parked at the Sharps' house around 9 p.m. Other witnesses 
report seeing a brown Dotson at the cabin. Right, and nothing comes from either of these alleged sightings. Initially, it is thought that the three boys who were in the bedroom, the young boys, slept through the attack. But soon authorities learned that Justin may have actually witnessed the attack. And Justin is the friend that's spending the night. So he claims that he had a dream about the murders. And in his dream, two men were fighting with Dana and John. And in his dream, the boys were thrown overboard. They were on a boat in his dream. He said that a man grabbed Tina and carried her outside of the house and then came back and took a hunting knife that was jammed in the wall and also grabbed a blanket before leaving again. He said that one man cut Sue in the chest with a pocket knife while holding a hammer in the other hand. Now, here's the thing. Super, like, he's on a boat dreaming about this, but some of the details kind of line up with what we think might have happened, right? We know that somebody stabbed a knife at or into the wall. So an assailant taking a knife out of the wall totally makes sense. We know that Sue was stabbed in the chest, We know that Tina was removed from the house, and we know that hammers were involved. So could he have actually witnessed maybe part of the murders and thought he was dreaming or translated it into a dream of some kind? Yeah. Now, later, he is hypnotized. Okay, I have mixed emotions about hypnotizing. I have very negative emotions about being hypnotized. Oh, I... Only the only reason I don't like it is because of all the false. Well, it's memory really things that have yeah. Been it's really easy for memories to be planted or memories to like things for people under hypnosis to say things that they know didn't happen. It happens all the time. People are very suggestive when they're in a hypnotic state. Yeah, it, I I think that it's I I don't think that hypnosis is I I feel like it's like a. Uh, Unless you're lie detector test. Well, I feel like unless you're doing it to relax, you shouldn't be hypnotizing anybody. But yeah, it's. But I feel like it. I feel like it's even less reliable than a. Oh well, for sure, because it's coming out of your own head. But like, it still. I don't. I think it's. Would be interesting to see what someone comes up with in hypnosis, especially in this state. Because like, what do you expect to do with this kid who may have seen the the murder? So this is what he says under hypnosis. He says that he woke up to noises and that he went to investigate them and that he saw Sue with two men, one of them with a mustache and short hair and the other clean shaven with long hair and both wore sunglasses. Now, he then said that John and Dana entered the house and an argument and fight broke out. He said that Tina then entered the house and was taken out the back door by one of the men. Based on his description, composite sketches were drawn up of these two men. And the man who did these sketches had no artistic ability or training on how to do these. Good. And these sketches were released to the public. Now, the description was as follows. They were in their late 20s to early 30s. One was between 5'11 and 6'2 with dark hair and the other between 5'6 and 5'10 with black greased hair, and both wore gold-framed sunglasses. 
And also the person who administered the hypnosis was Sheriff Doug Thomas, who had only attended two training sessions on how to hypnotize someone. Maybe. Maybe. Well, Maybe not. And these sketches. I mean... Oh, I'm excited to see these sketches with this man who <sighs> had no artistic ability. Yes. Yes. So the sketches, I mean, they really look like something that Phoenix the, could draw. Uh, no, I would describe at least the one on the right as the photo that Pam draws of the sex offender in the office. Oh, that's really Dwight Schrute. That's, <laughs> no, it's really all of the... Oh, a combination of everybody? No, that's no, Lloyd Gross. That's Lloyd Gross. No, yeah. okay. I would compare these photos to Lloyd Gross. I would compare these photos to the drawings that Pam does of people. The, I think these are worse, honestly. Oh, they're, they're, they're not good. There's not a lot of detail. They're just kind of pencil drawings. Like, they don't even have eyes. I know. Because they're, they're wearing sunglasses. You can't see their eyes. I don't know, dude. More than 150 pieces of evidence were collected. But remember, it's 1981. Now, all of the blood tested was type O blood, but the entire Sharp family was type O. So this didn't really help police. We're in the 80s again, remember? We're in the 80s. I'm also type O. It's a very common blood type. There were no drugs found in the cabin and no drugs found in the system of any of the victims. So when... Rumors started to spread that this was a drug deal gone wrong. Police were like, mm, maybe not. Okay, so Sheriff Thomas, uh, lead investigator on the case, called the Sacramento Department of Justice, which prompted them to send two special agents from their organized crime unit. Right, not homicide, but organized crime. Maybe the um, Sacramento Department of Justice thinks this sounds like something... That would be organized crime? I don't, I mean, I don't think it does. There were a couple suspects in the case. And initially, the main suspect was a neighbor named Martin Smart, who also happened to be the stepdad of Justin Easton, who was the friend that stayed the night hmm. in Cabin 28. Suspicious. Right? He actually told police initially when they were talking to him that his hammer had suddenly gone missing. Police also felt like he was giving them a lot of clues in an attempt to throw them off. So he just kept giving them like all this information, like maybe it's this and maybe it's that and all over the place. And they just felt like he wasn't being very sincere about it. Martin was actually known as a bit of a religious zealous, and he preached against people who he believed had loose morals. This seemed to enrage him. Once after an argument with his father, he had actually purchased bomb-making materials and was planning to blow his house up. I'm sorry. What? So we know that he has some anger issues. Recently, he had lost his job as a cook and was selling and manufacturing hash to support his family. So he's dealing drugs out of his cabin. A couple reasons that made him more of a suspect, too, is that Sue had actually... So I, I've heard it both ways. So Sue had actually been counseling Martin's wife and telling her that she should leave him because he was abusive. And remember, she had just 
gotten out of a, an abusive situation. So she's like, you've got to leave him. You've got to leave him now, that sort of thing. There was also another rumor going around that Sue was having an affair with Martin. We don't know if that's true or not. Drama. But now his wife would actually later say that she had left her husband and his friend, John Bo Bobody, around 11 p.m. at a local bar and that she had awoken to them around 2 a.m., burning something in the wood stove. She also claimed that she had turned over a bloody jacket that she believed belonged to Tina to the police. Now, she said that she had found it in her basement, and police actually say this jacket doesn't exist. So rather they lost it or never received it, we don't know. Hmm. So the night that they went out, that night, Martin and Bo, Bo had actually invited Sue to go along with them because he was rumored to have a crush on her. Okay. But she didn't go with them. So so you can add that to the, like, pile of strange things that are going on with this group of people. When Bo and Marty were interviewed, they were interviewed together. Good. Right? So I think we all know now that that's a really, really bad idea. His wife also said that her husband hated John Sharp with a passion. He's 15. I know. Cool. Good life aspirations, hating a 15-year-old. Martin did pass a polygraph. Which was serious back then. Which they took a little more serious back then, and we know now they are not very serious. They are never able to make a case against Martin and Bo. And in 2000... Martin would die of cancer, and Bo would die in 1988. So neither of them are around anymore. Yep. There's also a letter that was allegedly sent to Marilyn, Martin's wife, after he left Ketty, which he did shortly after the murders. He left Ketty. Okay. And in this letter, it said, I've paid the price of your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. You tell me that we're through, and great. What else do you want? Who sent where? Martin sent this letter to his wife after he left Ketty after the murders. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Are you following? Yes, that's suspicious. Now, I will say that I saw some other parts of this letter, and that I do think that that could have been taken out of context a little bit. So earlier in the letter, he's actually talking about his four kids and how he felt like he had to give up his relationship with them in order to be with her. So I don't know if he's talking about the four murdered people at the cabin or if he's talking about his four kids. Yeah, who knows? That he's paid the price with. But either way, we don't know. So another suspect is Robert Joseph Silveria Jr., who is known as the boxcar killer. So he usually killed people on the trains... And was not known to kill people in their houses, although Cabin 28 is right next to the railroad tracks. Right. He did confess, but recanted this later. Yeah, and he actually confessed to, like, something like over 40 murders or something. But he's only known to kill between, like, 9 and 14 people. But he's confessed to a ton of 
murders, even ones that they know he didn't commit. Interesting. So police don't really feel like he's a good suspect. Now, James Sharp, her ex-husband, had an alibi and was also ruled out. So the Golden State Killer was also in this area. Yep, but they were never able to link him. Another person was serial killer Henry Lee Luca, who actually confessed as well to the murders. And him and Otis Toole would travel around killing people. But both of them had actually been indicted in Florida on April 14 of 1981, and the murders occurred on the 12th of April. And the two did not travel by plane, so police don't think it's possible that they were able to get back to Florida. Now, when police started wondering, was Tina the intended target, a man named Joel Walker Lipsy comes up. Okay. Now, he actually was a special education teacher at Tina's school, and Tina attended his class part-time. Some believe that he had spent time grooming Tina, and he kept a picture of her on his desk, which I think is very weird, and they also found a photo of her in his home. Yeah, that's weird. That's, yeah. Very concerning. Not only that, but he actually had a prior conviction of committing lewd acts with a child under 14. But when brought in for questioning, he seemed to have a solid alibi, and he died in 2015. I'm sorry, why was this man working at a school? Yeah. Like, what in the fuck? Later that year, a knife is recovered in a trash can outside of the Keddie General store, and it was believed to be attached to the murders. But again... I, it doesn't sound like DNA testing was done on it. Yeah. So, on April 22nd, 1984... Right. Three years and 11 days after the murders. And Tina's disappearance. Yeah. A bottle collector discovered a skull and a few bones. And this was at Camp 18 near Feather Falls in Butte County. And this is a neighboring county about 100 miles from Ketty. Okay. So there was also a blue nylon jacket, a blanket, a pair of Levi jeans with a missing back pocket, and empty surgical tape dispenser. Now, initially, police thought these remains belonged to Kevin Collins, who was a 10-year-old that had disappeared from San Francisco in 1982. However, dental records did not match. Right, and they would eventually be identified to belong to Tina Sharp in June of 1984. Now, you would think that finding Tina's body would help maybe move the case a little more because the case is definitely cold by now. We are three years in, and they have no idea who is responsible for these murders. In 2016, a man was searching for his wedding ring near the Kiti Resort, where the cabins are located when he finds a hammer in shallow water. Police believe that this is the missing hammer of Martin Smart and the hammer that was used in the murders, which still no proof. Also in 2016, an anonymous counselor from the VA came forward and said that Marty had confessed to killing Sue and Tina, but said that he didn't have anything to do with the boys. And he told her that he killed Tina not to leave a witness. 
and that he blamed Sue for breaking up his marriage. But what happened to the boys? Well, remember, the claim is that him and Bo did the killings together. Yeah. But I'm sorry. If you killed Tina because she was a witness, why wouldn't you leave her in the house? Why wouldn't you leave her in the cabin with the rest of the bodies? Yeah, suspicious. I don't believe that for a second. The investigation was thought to be botched from the beginning. And we can only look back with hindsight and say, why didn't they do this and why didn't they do that? But we don't know why, right? I mean, they didn't have the same technology that they have now, but I feel like there's a lot of things that they could have done differently in this investigation. Mm -hmm. Number one on the list is probably how they handled the evidence. In 1981, a detective named Gamberg was a deputy with the Plumas County Sheriff's Office prior to the murders. And when he was reinstated, he kept out of the investigation. He claimed that leads in the case were ignored or just not followed up on. A man named Hayward would graduate from the California State University with a degree in criminal justice. He would become a deputy in his hometown in 1988, and he was well aware that even with the case still considered open, that nothing was happening on it and that it was not a priority. And he would ask Gamberg, who was now a private investigator, to take over the case. Mm -hmm. So Gamberg worked for the county sheriff during these murders or around the time of these murders, but he didn't have anything to do with the original investigation. Gotcha. Now, Gamberg started wading through the boxes of evidence, which were in disarray and some had even been contaminated. There was actually a freezer that was full of evidence from this case, but at some point over the years, the freezer had been turned off, destroying the evidence. The evidence. He said that the case was as screwed up as a soup sandwich, whatever that means. I don't know, but I like it. All right. Among the evidence, he found a bag and envelope that had never been opened. And inside the envelope, he found a tape recording of an anonymous call to Butte County Dispatch. It was shortly after the discovery of Tina's body, but before she was identified. And they received this anonymous call who basically claimed that the remains were Tina's or suggested that the remains were Tina's. Mm -hmm. Now the caller says, Hello, I was watching the news and they were talking about the skull they found at Feather Falls. And they asked for any help. The dispatcher says, uh-huh. The caller says, and I was just wondering if they thought of the murder up in Ketty, up in Plumas County, a couple of years ago where a 12-year-old girl was never found. This call was never followed up on. Yeah, it could just be someone who, um, like, like put the pieces together before police did. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be that, or it could be a suspect who felt the need to insert themselves into, or the wanted to make sure that it was going to be identified as Tina, not that little boy. Well, and did they choose to be anonymous, or did the county sheriff just not take down their information? Yeah, I don't know. That's another question that I have. But either way, this was in a sealed envelope that had never been opened, like. What? In April of 2018, it was stated that DNA evidence recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene matched that of a known 
living suspect. Now, this was a piece of tape that was found near Shu's body, and the name of that suspect has never been released and no arrest has been made. But if it's a living suspect, that eliminates almost all the suspects. Because most of them by 2018 are dead. Hmm. So if they found the DNA of a suspect, why has he not been arrested? I have no idea. What I'm wondering is, could it be a suspect that maybe they know was at the scene? Like maybe somebody, maybe the dad from the cabin that went over there and possibly got his DNA on the scene. Maybe he was considered a suspect just because he was in close proximity, but they don't think he's actually responsible. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the only thing I can think of as to why they wouldn't arrest this person. Yeah. There are a lot of theories in this case, right? So there's the rumor that it was part of organized crime. And this rumor comes from Bo, because it was rumored that Bo was a part of organized crime. I don't really see this as an organized crime situation. No. There's another theory out there that Tina was initially involved. And the theory goes something like this. She was possibly groomed by somebody and left willingly with them after they killed her family or her mom being the main target. A couple issues I have with that. Tina probably could have easily climbed out a window and left the house if she wanted to run away with somebody. And two... Why why is it so violent? Why are, are her mother's clothes removed if um, that's there's the blood case? in her bed? There is blood in her bed. Was she even alive when she left there? I'm thinking she left alive because her jacket and her shoes went with yeah. her. But I don't know. I'm thinking the blood might be from the mom actually in the bedroom because they shared a room. Mm. So I don't know if Tina was involved. I think once they found Tina's body, maybe that theory didn't seem as likely. Yeah. You know, that she left on her own accord, accord, right? Another theory is that Sue was possibly being sexually assaulted and the boys got home and interrupted whatever was going on. And to me, this theory actually kind of makes sense because it all occurs in the living room. It seems like unless there's a lot of suspects or a lot of assailants that it would have been hard for them to subdue the two teenage boys and the mom and Tina all at the same time unless the mom and Tina were already subdued they were already tied up sexual assault is going on the boys get home interrupt that and then they're murdered I don't well the neighbor watched that lady watched them walk into the house right and they could have walked into interrupting something yeah ugh I don't know. Also, there's blood in the bedroom, so the assault could have been occurring in the bedroom, and the boys got home, and the assailant came out, or assailants came out, mm-hmm. dealt with the boys, and her. we know her body was already moved. Yeah. I think the biggest question is probably who was the intended victim if this wasn't a crime of opportunity, because to me, this doesn't seem like a crime of opportunity. No. So... I would say that Tina was the intended victim. Because she was taken from the house. Yes. That's what I would say as well. Um, There's also a rumor that Dana, John's friend, was involved in drugs. And somebody in his family suggested that they thought he had stolen some LSD from a drug dealer. This was never substantiated. There was never any proof of this. There was no drugs in the house. He just bought LSD from a drug dealer. 
Well, somebody in his family said that they they heard a rumor that he had stolen LSD from a drug dealer. Okay. But I don't think that the boys are the victims, even though Dana was strangled, which is different than the others. Maybe Dana just pissed the guy off. <sighs> yeah, maybe. I would think that Dana was the least resistant, though, and that's why he was strangled, and the others fought more, which is why they had... Either way, one of the two. Yeah. is It's going to go either way. Either he made him so angry that he, like, physically strangled him right then and there. Yeah. Or he put up the least amount of fight, so... Now, the three young Sharp children went to live with an aunt, but they were eventually sent to live in foster care. I think that's so sad. Yeah. There are rumors that Cabin 28 is haunted, and it was actually demolished in 2004. Dana Wingate's father said, nobody has the faintest idea who killed my son. So I long ago had to let this thing go, or it would eat me alive. I don't think about it. I don't go to that ghost town, and I have no idea if ghosts exist there. But I do know this. There is evil in this world, and evil was in that house that night. Yeah. That is the Ketty Cabin Murders, which is still technically unsolved. I can't imagine what Sheila's life is like. After seeing her dead brother. Well, not only that, but her sister gets kidnapped and is missing for three years. Her mom, her brother, her brother's friend, and then her and her younger siblings end up in foster care after all of it. They probably got split up, too. They probably got split up. I doubt they all stay together. Uh, All right. Well, that was the Kitty Cabin Murders. Thank you so much, you guys, for tuning in and listening. Sorry, that was kind of a tough one. And we're going to click over and do our bunker talk on Patreon. But before we do that, we have some new Patreons. We have Christina Sanchez. Hi, Christina. We have Travis Osterhaus. 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 And that's actually the one of the co-founders of the Repod, that new podcasting oh, yeah. app. Yeah. Um, and then we have Josh. Hi, Josh. Welcome to Patreon. And mm-hmm. we have Jill Lorenzo. Or wait, Lorenz? Lorenz? Just Lorenz. Jill Lorenz. Hi, Jill. Welcome to Patreon. And thank you again for all of your guys' support. We really appreciate our Patreons. Um, If you want some more bonus material, extra episodes, or a Christmas card, go and check out our Patreon. Yes. Also, follow us on social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook and the things, you know. We're on everything. Yeah. We don't post on everything, though, so... Find us where you can. Find us where you can. Um, We also have some links in our bio on Instagram if you guys want to buy our coffee for our recording episodes or anything like that. There's also merchandise that you can check out on there. Um, So thank you so much for supporting us. And we really, really appreciate you all. Thank you so much. All right. Bye, guys. Our neighbor's calling. Hello? Lovely. Uh, yeah, let, we'll call them right now. Yeah, call. Okay, <laughs> bye. Uh, so someone broke into a box or Somebody broke? bumped into the alarm box and they can't get it to turn off because they don't have the alarm code.
That is so funny. Yeah. So we're having neighbor drama right now. So we just got new neighbors to the... Would that be to the left or the right of us? I would call that to the left of us. Because I would count it how you would facing the house. I'm not sure, though. Okay. Well, either way, one of our neighbors... We're so sad. We were so sad to see our old neighbors leave. But our new neighbor just called us because someone bumped into an alarm box mm-hmm. that they have, I guess, mm-hmm. in their cellar. Where and in the fuck are my contacts on my phone? I, everything's moved around. I don't know. Look it up. <sighs> There's a little search bar up there. There you go. Oh, God. I hope they... Hello? Hey, Sherry. It's Marie. How are you? Hi. Great. How are you? <laughs> Good. Hey, I just got a call from our new neighbors, and apparently one of them bumped into the alarm box, and they can't get it to turn off now. Oh, my God. Um, and they they asked if you knew what the code was because they can't turn it off. All right, well, I'll let, I'll let her know and see if it works. Okay, <laughs> we miss you guys. Oh, thank you. We miss you, too. All right. You'll have to come visit us. Yes, we will. I promise. Okay. All right. No. Okay. Yay. Bye. Bye. With a pound, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no problem. She was like, it's either a pound or a star. I don't know. Yeah. Hopefully that brings your stress level down a little bit. Oh my gosh, it was so loud. I probably would have ripped it from the wall, to be honest. Oh, you just... <laughs> Uh, yeah, no problem. Okay. All right, bye. Yeah, that I would have literally lost my mind. Oh, and I, it's probably like when the power goes out at like uh, if you work at like a fast food place, like when the power went out at Starbucks and the safe and all the computers and the machines, everything's beeping and mm-hmm. beeping and making noises and it's constantly going off. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it like you're in it for so long that it gets so quiet for a second for like a little bit. Yeah. And then you like hear it again and then it gets loud and then you get it like builds <laughs> and then you she can't She sounded do very stressed out. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, I've uh, walked, I haven't walked into a random neighbor's house, but I've walked into random neighbors in our neighborhood's yards, like, up on their decks. Oh, for dogs? Let dogs back in the house. (laughs) We have this one corner in our neighborhood where I swear to God, at least, like, once a year, I almost hit a dog. Every year, I find a dog on that same bend. Like, on that corner? That one corner. Yeah, uh uh-huh. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Yeah. because that's that's the same area where But Maddie's so nice. Like, she gets out of her car. She checks their tags. She puts them back in their backyards or wherever they're supposed to go. (laughs) Well, one dog ran out in the middle of the road, like, right in front of my car. And I, like, slammed on my brakes. And there was already a lady that had stopped there. And I was like, what are you... Like, got out of the car. I was like, what are you doing? Like, telling the dog and it, like, ran up to this house and was, like, sitting at the front door. And there was no one home. So, hopefully no that home. dog belonged there. <laughs> yeah. Or I just put someone ran- someone's random, a random dog. The in gate, the back gate was backyard. open. The back gate was open. Yeah. On the deck. So, I'm thinking that he got out. Hopefully that was their dog. If not, whatever, the dog didn't get hit by a car, which was what was gonna happen. I'm sure, I'm sure they found. Or they dealt with it. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. And then the other time I found, I like, he was just chilling. He was just walking in the middle of the night on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Turned around, went and saw him. I was like, what are you doing? Came right up to my car, right up to me. He was like, yeah, we're friends. 
And then I'm like, what are you doing? I call my mom. I'm like, dude, there's a dog. <laughs> and then some guy steps out the door. Like, because my hazards are on. I'm around a corner. So I think he was just confused. And then he sees me with the dog and he goes, God damn it. And then whatever the dog's <laughs> name was, get over here. <laughs> Don't like, oh my God. One of the kids I was watching, one of the, one of the, one of the kids I watch grabbed a knife, butcher's knife off oh, the God. counter that I'd been cutting with. And he just turned around with it in his hand. I got straight Chucky flash. <laughs> like a straight, like, no. this little kid is going to run after me with this Isn't he, like, sharp not knife. even two? Yeah, n- not even two. <laughs> got it off the counter, turned around, and looked at me with it in his hand. And I'm like, no. This kid is going to run at me with a knife. <laughs> I'm going to be murdered by a two-year-old right now. Uh, I did take the knife from the kid. Probably a good call. Everything was fine, and I'm not endangering children. Thing. Absolutely nothing. I have yelled at the wrong children for being loud in the kitchen. Yeah. Oh my god. I was literally making food, and she comes in the kitchen. Like I'm, I'm a grown adult making food in loudly. The kitchen. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> but then she comes in. She goes, "What are you doing up here? You should be downstairs. You should be in bed." And I'm like, "Who do you think I am?" <laughs> I was like, "What?" She's like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Making food." You should not be eating at this time. Mom, who do you think I am? Yeah, I thought she was Cordy. She squints, rubs her eyes, and does like the lean forward thing towards me. Yeah. And is like... To be fair, Madison is really loud in the middle of the night. She wakes me up almost every night. Slamming bathroom doors, making food, opening doors. I don't know what she's doing, but every night she wakes me up. I haven't slept through the night in probably 20 years. <laughs> you should wear some earplugs. I should, but then who's going to get up and investigate when somebody's breaking into our house? Not you. Definitely not me. I'll be passed out. 